Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, February 12th, 2023. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. On the show today, I ride Tron, plus news, listener questions, and surveys. Then in our main segment, Jim tells us about all the times Disney's tried to use robotic arms as rides in its theme parks. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that if being hard on yourself worked, it would have worked by now. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well, Len. And by the way, have you ever heard of this British expression, hard cheese? If someone says, you know, I don't want to move the barbells up to the attic, or I I don't want liverwurst for lunch, you're supposed to say, well, hard cheese, which is, I guess, the British equivalent of tough luck. (laughs) Tough cookies. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's expressions like this and things like Bob's your uncle, which, by the way, that's the British equivalent of, there it is. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, voila, yeah. It seems to me that the Brits say things like this to keep Americans from annoying them in pubs. (laughs) You're conversing with someone who says, hard cheese, and Bob's your uncle, and and you're sitting there thinking, I know these words. Yes. <laughs> you know, You're momentarily stunned and then they go away. It's, it's no, no, that's it exactly. It's and, like and, an escape and, tactic, like uh, like squidding. That's it exactly. And and <laughs> and the sad thing is confused Americans then go back to their hotel where where they get served baked beans for breakfast and and they're even more confused. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, John Luther, Jackie Parmalee, Al Chaser, and Mike345. And to longtime subscribers, Emily Kind. Mandy Erickson, Michael Fitz, and Devon Drake 49. Jim, these are the Disney cast members who'll be pulling Main Street's old swan boats out of dry dock to ferry guests back and forth between the Grand Floridian and the Magic Kingdom while the Grand Flow walkway is down for maintenance starting today. They say that they were going to go with the Davy Crockett canoes, but the swan boats were recently upgraded to Evan Rood 150 engines, allowing guests to water ski into the parks, and that's a benefit. True story. I am down by Seven Seas Lagoon now with a camera. I want to see this. This, this would <laughs> the be the headdress, the sort of old Cypress Gardens look. Mm-hmm. I think so. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, first, the big news. I wrote Tron last week, thanks to our friend uh, Nathan, who's a cast member. And? Uh, it was it was pretty interesting. They they made us sign up at the TTC, and mm-hmm. I haven't been to the Magic Kingdom TTC parking lot in a long time for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons. But I got my preferred parking spot, and I was immediately surprised by the fact that the parking row that I was on, a mm-hmm. didn't have a sign, and b did not have a legible parking row number on it. <laughs> And so I get out and I'm next to this Australian couple and we're all sort of like turning around going like, do we use the angle of the sun to determine where we are right now? Like I did not bring my astrolab with me. So how do we, anyway, we were, uh, happened to be right next to a monorail pylon and it had a number mm-hmm. on it. So we're like, okay, we're near this thing. And that's wow. how we, uh, we get back. So we, anyway, we get in, mm-hmm. they actually did the cast member screening at the TTC. So they give you a little wristband. Then once you get in the Magic Kingdom, you're basically, you can you can go in and, mm-hmm. and ride Tron. So the entrance to Tron is approached as if you were walking towards Space Mountain. And then right before you get in the Space Mountain queue, you veer to the left, sort of between the Tomorrowland Speedway and the old Tomorrowland Power and Light Company, the exit to uh, Space Mountain. 
which will also be the exit to Tron eventually. You go through that, mm-hmm. and then you sort of walk up, uh, you go over the, the train uh, tracks, and then into Tron. And the first thing I want to say is the outdoor area for Tron with a sort of mm-hmm. undulating canopy is really awesome. It looks impressive from a distance, but Jim, when you're underneath that canopy with the coaster mm-hmm. going past you and stuff, it is really kind of cool. I think it's one of the best architectural things that Imagineering's done in a really long time. Cool. And I'm sure it's okay, going to look stunning at night. When you're, mm-hmm. Yeah, like mm-hmm. super impressed with how they did that. Um, also, there's a little bit of a breeze going on there. I don't know how they work that. Maybe the, mm-hmm. the canopy compresses air or whatever. But the fact that it's covered and you get a little bit of a breeze, I think, will make it helpful for the mm-hmm. long lines that are sure to develop once this ride opens. The other interesting thing is in the line, before you actually get in line, there's a test ride vehicles so mm-hmm. you can see how you fit on them. Remember that uh, the Tron ride vehicles are like riding a motorcycle. You're sitting essentially over the, uh, the bike, so with your feet behind you and your hands in front of you. So they've got a couple of ride vehicles there where you can test yourself on those. I spoke to cast members, female cast members who were sizes 18 and 20, and they had mm-hmm. no problems fitting in the ride vehicles. The one thing they said was, and this is kind mm-hmm. of the same thing we saw at Flight of Passage. It's mm-hmm. not really about the size of like your stomach or the size of your torso. A lot mm-hmm. of it comes down to can the restraints around your calves and thighs mm-hmm. lock into place? And they said they've actually had like relatively thin people who are runners who have like really large calves or thighs. And oh. they're not able to go even though the rest of them is relatively small. Hmm. So that's one thing. The, uh, the other thing is, is there are um, sit straight seat, like regular roller coaster seats, one at mm-hmm. the end of each train for accessibility. So you can always sit there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you get through the, uh, start going through the queue. The, um, there's, a, you know, there's an outdoor part, then there's an indoor part. There are a couple of really mm-hmm. neat effects on the indoor part. Um, as soon as you go inside, there's also some ceiling fans as you go back and forth in, sort of the, uh, in the queue. There are a couple of really interesting visual effects there. Um, you also get lockers to store your stuff in. And these are also super interesting for Disney too, because this is the first time they've implemented them. So the lockers each have a number on them mm-hmm. from like 000 to like 999. So it's a lot of mm-hmm. lockers. You open the locker by touching your magic band or your admission media. Mm-hmm. And you identify the lockers that are empty because they have lights that are lit. So when somebody's stuff is in a locker, the light mm-hmm. on the locker goes dark. So you put your stuff in the locker, so you touch your, tap your magic band, open the locker, throw your stuff in, close it. It locks automatically. There are little readers, magic band readers, on either side of the lockers. So if you immediately forget what your locker number is, like I did, mm-hmm. you can touch your magic band and it'll say, oh, you're in locker you know, 657 or whatever. So all your stuff goes in the locker. I would say it's a relatively small locker, like maybe mm-hmm. one cubic foot. I mean, you're okay. putting like a small backpack in there. You're not putting like... You're not putting a large backpack in there. You're putting something small, like something that your, mm-hmm. your kids could carry to school. So you um, drop that stuff off. You go through the rest of the queue. And then from the point where you actually see the ride, it looks mm-hmm. a lot like the Guardians of the Galaxy queue. So you mm-hmm. sort of go down a ramp, and there are loading areas on either side. It's all dark mm-hmm. and sort of like neon lights. Cast members will direct you to one side or another. And then you're divided again. And this is interesting. There's another cast member right before you get into the loading area. Mm-hmm. And they ask you this question, is there an even number of people in your party or an odd number of people? And if it's odd, you get on one side. And if it's even, you get on another. Do you know why they do this, Jim? I have no idea. It's to make sure that there are no empty seats. 
And I actually, it took me 10 seconds here to do the math. But here's the interesting thing. If you put mm -hmm. all the odd people together, then mm -hmm. any two odd numbers added together is always an even number. So mm -hmm. like 5 plus 7 is 12. That's even. 5 plus 9 is 14. That's also even, right? And two even numbers added together is also an mm -hmm. even number, right? 2 plus 2 is 4. 4 plus 4 is 8 and so on. So they can take two groups from either line mm -hmm. and be sure that they have an even number of guests. Math is a wonderful thing. It, it was pretty clever, right? I was like, yeah, it, yeah, it, like I had yeah. to think about that for 10 seconds. I'm like, yeah, why haven't we done that for the last 50 years? Because like <laughs> I'm pretty sure the mathematical properties of those two things have not changed you know, oh, in yeah. a long time. But yeah, that's, that's actually pretty smart. That's really clever in a plain Jane sort of way. Yeah, yeah. And, and it you know it's it's low tech, it's super simple, mm -hmm. can explain to cast members, and it, and it seems to work. So um, the queue area is a lot like uh, Guardians. You get on the ride, so this is interesting too because you actually walk between the ride vehicles. If you're on mm -hmm. the ride vehicle on the far side, you actually uh, walk between the ride vehicles, which feels weird in a Disney park. Mm -hmm. But then you get on sort of like flight of passage, or getting on a bicycle or a motorcycle, sort of swing one leg over. Get your feet mm -hmm. in. And then from there, you're launched. So it's a lot like rock and roller coaster. You basically go zero to 60. I think in this case, mm -hmm. it's like zero to 59 in a couple mm -hmm. of seconds. You shoot out of the building and up and over. It's a great feeling. The launch is, I think, the best part of the entire ride. Mm -hmm. Super fun. Um, a lot of wind blowing, a lot of people screaming. I did not feel nauseous at all during the launch or on the ride. You go through okay. a couple of swoops. You go through a couple mm -hmm. of buildings. Supposedly, there's a story here. I did not get anything around story at all in it. But apparently there's a you're on the blue team and there's a race with the yellow team hmm. or something. I don't know. It was like if there's a if there's a story there, completely missed it. And then yeah. the ride ends back inside. This was a was a daytime test of it. Yep. And obviously I think the thing of Tron is it looks really spectacular at night. Yeah. Any thoughts about w whether or not this would be something to really do at night or really do during the day? Or I think it's going to look great at night. The um, I don't think the visuals outside of the Tron area are going to be... I think no matter what time of day you go, you're not going to see much of the outside of the park, right? You're not just not. That's the way that the canopy works and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, it could definitely be fun at night. My next preview is on April 2nd in the evening. So I'll try it then and see what happens. Yeah, but it, it, it looks good tonight. My, my, the, the launch is great. There are no inversions. There's no loops or anything like that. So it's fast like Rock and Roller Coaster, but you don't go upside down like Rock mm -hmm. and Roller Coaster. The one criticism I would have for the ride, besides the fact that there's supposed to be a story that I don't understand, mm -hmm. is it's really short, Jim. Like if you round up, it might be a minute. But it could be 55 seconds. And that's a very short ride for what is potentially a very long wait or a very expensive individual lightning lane. That is kind of the curse of a clone. I mean, you know, yeah. just it, this was popular in Shanghai. They bring mm -hmm. it here. And particularly in that park, they didn't have a lot to compare it to, which right. kind of unfortunate that this is coming online right after Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind, which is three minutes long? Or? Yeah, it's a, it's a much shorter ride than mm. Guardians of the Galaxy. The, uh, but the other thing in comparison to Guardians is it does not, did not make me anywhere near as sick, like no nausea whatsoever. Like Guardians, okay. I can ride once and it'll be fine. 
I get to the second time with Guardians, and that's the only thing I'm going to do for the rest of the day. All right. Yeah. But so in terms of nausea, not bad at all. Like I said, there's definitely seats in the back for uh, folks who don't want to try sitting in a motorcycle position. Mm-hmm. My here's, here's my thing. Like, we all know that this ride is there for capacity for the Magic Kingdom. Mm-hmm. That's why the ride is only a minute long. They're trying to get lots of people through it. In terms of that, it looks great in Tomorrowland. It's going to look great at night. The launch is fun, you know, and it's really there to pull people to that side of the park and away from, you know, Tiana's and Seven George Mine Train. I mean, it's going to do mm-hmm. what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. It's not like of the of the Magic Kingdom mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's five of them, you know, if there eventually will be five of them with Tiana's, this will probably be number five on my list. Okay, but you know, four stars out of five because it's still not a bad ride. My only concern, and I'm basing this strictly on what you just said about the physical setup. You had like you're heading toward uh, Space Mountain. You dog leg left, but you're mm-hmm. you're passing in front of the old. Tomorrowland Power Company, which is eventually going to wind up as the, the retail exit point for both Space Mountain and You Tron. mentioned that, and I think they're working on another one inside the ride as mm. well. Because there was some stuff that was still being constructed as okay. I was walking out of the ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I just, I, I worry about this physical setup with two thrill rides side by side what this is going to be like. Busy holiday period, busy summer day, but I guess we have to wait for it to open to see what, what you know, again, sort of classic Disney theme park thing. You you open it and then like, oh, now we fix that. Let's, let's see how people use this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the other thing is the walkway between the rest of Tomorrowland and Fantasyland wasn't open yet, so I didn't get a chance to walk out. Okay. And I didn't really get a chance to see the train go by either, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, next time. Okay. Yeah. So overall, M Solid Ride, good addition to the park. Cool, cool. All right, Jim. Also, uh, yesterday, Disney announced its uh, latest earnings on its earnings call. This was for the period, I believe, October 1st to December 31st, 2022. So the big things from the parks, Disney will spend $700 million less in domestic park development this year, roughly a 10% cut, by changing the timing of some projects. And Jim, I'm taking this to mean we're going to delay some stuff eight months until the start of the new fiscal year on October 1st. Is that what you got out of that? Yeah, but just prior to Bob Chapek heading out the door, we heard that story about a billion dollars being added to right. Uh, the- yeah, and I got some questions about that after after this uh, this thing was done. I'm like, that's what I heard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. Yeah, so that's a that's a big change. It also uh, yeah. means that uh, Disney's in no hurry to build new attractions, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, after the call, Disney said that theme park attendance in the quarter so far. So January 1st to now was up versus the same time in 2022. Um, also, did you see this, that uh, Iger explicitly criticized the price raising schemes under JPEG? Yeah. So uh, so Iger said, it's clear that some of our pricing initiatives were alienated to consumers. I've always mm-hmm. believed that accessibility is a core value of the Disney brand. We were not perceived to be as accessible or as affordable to many segments. But we probably should have been after basically paying heed to what we're hearing, we started to address it, and the steps we took were actually very, very positive. We got really great reactions to it. Okay, so what they did is they they cut parking fees and a couple of other things. The other thing on the on the earnings call that was interesting was this: they said mm-hmm. guest spending growth, so the mm-hmm. increase in guest spending was due to an increase in average per capita ticket revenue, driven by Genie Plus and Lightning Lane. So it's one thing to say, yeah, you know, we acknowledge that uh, we 
have become more expensive. On the other hand, look at how much money we're making because of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so we're going to see a lot of talk about prices, but they're not going to lower them because attendance is strong and they need the money for other things. They do. And I guess we're kind of back in the country of the priority is the first time visitor to the park. You know, these folks are not going to have an issue with Lightning Lane or Genie yeah. Plus. If it's a once in a lifetime trip, yeah, they're, they're going to be less price sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of other interesting things came out of the, uh, the call. Uh, one mm-hmm. major one was that Disney is reorganizing into three divisions. Yes. You saw this, right? Parks. ESPN or, you know, sports mm-hmm. and basically everything else. So streaming, media, movies. And so my first question was, is ESPN its own thing so it could be spun out? And Iger later said, it is not, we, we don't have any plans to do this, you know, right now. But mm-hmm. it certainly makes it easier, right? Yeah, it does. But uh, weirdly enough, when Disney bought Cap Cities back in 1995, ESPN became the crown jewel. They hadn't anticipated that it was going to turn out to be the the, the cash machine that it turned out to be. Right. So, and Iger having come over to Disney from there, yeah. I think there's going to be a reluctance on his part if this push comes to shove. Iger's Iger, he'll do it. But I heard that uh, about half the job cuts are in marketing. <laughs> Which, um, it's somewhat ironic, uh, but yeah, yeah. If you think about how how big a spend you used to do magazines, newspapers, you know, yeah, that's all digital, yeah, and and yes, yeah, and and a lot of the ad digital stuff is automated by the ad platform itself. So there you go. Yeah, what do you mean? The Mm -hmm. um, the other interesting thing I heard was that um, uh, uh, so they announced seven thousand job cuts as well, but Mm -hmm. of those seven thousand, a large number of those will be in not filling roles that are already unfilled. Hmm. So there are, let's say you've got 20 job openings. They're just going to take away the 20 job openings rather than displace people. And I've heard that's going to be uh, some of it as well. Okay. Well, that's a little concerning given some issues that we're still seeing at the parks. But, you know, how many other companies have done this exact same thing over yeah. the past six months or so? And, and how much of this is done to appease Wall Street? No, I think a lot of it is. There was a, uh, there's a commentary I was reading that's like, it looked at the tech layoffs and mm-hmm. said essentially everyone in tech is laying off between five and six percent of their workforce. And is that because that they were all magically between five and six percent overstaffed, or is this the number basically that Wall Street is looking for right now? You've nailed it. One. Also on the uh, on the studio side, uh, Disney announced a couple of sequels. One is mm-hmm. Toy Story Five, mm-hmm. Frozen Three, Zootopia Two. And then Inside Out 2. And Jim, let me just say, I don't know much about topology, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure that two inside outs means inside in. <laughs> and for you math nerds out there shouting about Klein bottles and Taurus aversions for the love of God, just let me have this one thing, okay? <laughs> if you look at the scenario just from the park side of things with – that amazing sort of drone flyover of Hong Kong Disneyland's right. Frozen Land. Likewise, I don't know if you've seen the the faux cityscape for Zootopia uh, at Shanghai Disneyland. And of course, how many Toy Story lands have been built around the globe? Mm. This was something of a no-brainer as to what they decided to sequelize. On the other hand, 
I'm going to be intrigued to see how they pull off a Toy Story 5 because you saw the the end. You saw that one, right? I haven't seen Toy Story 4 yet. The, the franchise is kind of getting old for me. Basically, Woody is is left behind with Bo. The other toys return to the nursery, but Woody's gone off into the, to the great world, you know, with Bo to have a, a wonderful adventure, just the two of them. So it's like... I'm not entirely sure how you get the band back together again. Yeah. I mean, I I have no appetite to see it. I didn't see Toy Story 4. I have no appetite to see a Toy Story 5. Okay. Okay. I understand why they're doing it, but... I don't say this to be mean, but when a parent hears Toy Story 5, it's like, ah, two hours of peace and quiet. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. All right. There's one Saturday afternoon checked off the, checked off <laughs> the list. There we go. Yes, we've all been there. Yeah, so. There we go. All right. One other uh, bit of uh, Disney news, looks like uh, Boardwalk Villas is getting uh, room redos, uh, which are good. We'll talk about that more in an upcoming episode. Okay. All right, Jim, on to surveys from Jessica. A survey about the new Hey Disney smart speakers recently installed around property. So Jessica sent in a couple of questions. One of them is this. Did you have the Hey Disney smart speaker in your room during your stay? And this was at the Poly. And she said, yes. Uh, next question was, did you use the Hey Disney smart speaker during your stay? The answer was no. Mm -hmm. And then uh, which of the following are reasons why you didn't use the Hey Disney smart speaker? Um, it was difficult to use. I didn't understand how to use it. I have privacy concerns with this type of technology. I forgot about it. It didn't work. I'm just not interested. I didn't have time to use it. Other or none of the above. Then the other question was, uh, and this is where I'm going with this, uh, how interested would you be in purchasing Hey Disney for at-home use. Extremely somewhat neither interested, somewhat uninterested, or extremely uninterested. Here's why I mentioned this, Jim. In the last couple of weeks, there have been a number of articles highlighting how bad of a money-losing business smart speakers are. They lose tons of money. So Business Insider reports that uh, Amazon's Alexa loses Amazon around $10 billion <sighs> per year. Oof. And so the question that I have is, what's the business case for this? Because when Amazon originally launched this, mm -hmm. their idea was that people would buy things through the speaker and they would sign up for uh, value-added services. But as it turns out, um, the vast majority of smart speaker use is to play music mm -hmm. and to ask about the weather. And you can't charge for those things. So I'm trying to figure out where the money-making opportunity is for Disney with smart speakers. Like what service could Disney provide through a smart speaker that you would pay money for every month? Well, just spitballing here. Remember how they described initially uh, the Magic Bands deck. You know, there, mm -hmm. there were all sorts of functions that proposed that never got turned on. But do you remember for uh, the Disney speaker thing, how they talked about how your child could ask for a bedtime story that maybe as you know something to put in in your your child's bedroom that would adjust the lighting at night and entertain them at, at, at bedtime right so it could be hey disney tell me a bedtime story right there we go there we go you and, know Jim, we're about three weeks away from chat gpt being able to do that on our own and that's going to be free <laughs> okay <Yeah. laughs> and, and not to give anything away but anyone who saw the end of megan you know there's a dark possible spin on this <laughs> i haven't seen it yet laurel and i are going to go see that we haven't seen it yet but it looks it looks very funny so okay good uh, yeah super excited that good luck with that 
All right. Jeff sent along an Epcot survey about Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I want to mention this is that it had an unusual mm -hmm. phrasing in the question. Mm -hmm. And the questions were like this. If Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind at Epcot had not been occurring, would you still have visited the Walt Disney World Resort? And so Jeff's point was like, you don't say if this ride had not been occurring because that's not normal English, mm -hmm. right? So what's going on there? Because there's a series of the, the questions keep going over and over again. Would you, uh, if Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind had not been occurring, would you still have visited it in January mm -hmm. of 2023? My guess here is this is just a repurposed survey from mm -hmm. a festival like Festival of the Arts. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I, by the way, my comment back to, to Jeff was um, this survey is doing me a concern. <laughs> Thank you. I, 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 just, I may have said heckin' concern, but okay, yeah. Okay. Just want to reach out to our themed entertainment professional friends out there. This isn't another activation situation, is it? This isn't something that oh, the themed entertainment pro nah. professionals are saying that, you know, well, the ride was occurring. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, I was at the Eiffel Tower when it was occurring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nouns, nouns don't occur in that, in the, not the right word to use there. Yeah, so I think it's a repurposed survey around uh, around festivals, which would make more sense. I'm hoping you're right, Len, because I don't want to have to try to shoehorn this into <laughs> my vocabulary. All right. And, uh, and Lindsay sent along a Disney Springs survey mm -hmm. with a fun warning message. And so the question was, in total, approximately how many trips have you made to the Walt Disney Resort since they opened in 1971? And so Lindsay said 200. And <laughs> the survey came back and said, the number you entered is too large. <laughs> And, and Lindsay didn't say, you know, stop judging me, survey. You're not my mother. But <laughs> that's what I would have said. Oh, uh, yeah, wow. so apparently you couldn't answer more than 99, but it wasn't in the survey instructions. So okay. you just keep lowering the number on it. Right, I'm sure someone will fix that. There were arms of the Disney company that actually know there are people like Lindsay out there. And, yeah. and they I love mean, people, you know, like Lindsay. There's a, there's a small but non-zero percentage of people who have been to the parks more than a hundred times easily. You know, if you, yeah. And a, a lot of the people who are listening to the show are in that group, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> okay. it makes sense. Yeah. All right. So two quick listener emails. And before I say this first, thanks to everyone who sent in their Taylor Swift playlists for me. Uh, one quick observation, every single person that wrote in recommended the 10 minute version of all too well, which <laughs> makes me think Jim, that our listeners are not members of the Jake Gyllenhaal fan club. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know how he has a career going forward. Wow. Also, uh, everyone recommended Snow on the Beach, and I was mm -hmm. like, oh my God, this sounds like a Lana Del Rey song, mm -hmm. which is pretty funny when Lana started singing on it a few seconds later. So that was, <sighs> I've seen Lana twice in concert, by the way. Oh, holy cow. All right. Cool. Anyway, uh, Corey writes in uh, with this mm -hmm. uh, The new calendar for Run Disney's 2024 races had me thinking about this year and the opening of Tron. Mm -hmm. How do you think the timing of the springtime surprise races, which are April 13th to the 16th, will impact or be impacted by the opening of Tron? So Tron's official opening is on the 4th mm -hmm. This is of April. This is 10 days later. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there'll be crowds, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's going to be as big You know, 10 days after the opening, especially with such a long AP preview period uh, and cast member preview going in. Um, also, uh, Corey writes in and says, as you were talking about the possibilities of expansion for Morocco and Japan, I was wondering two things. Does Disney have control over the Japan space or is it managed by the country of Japan? 
And what are your expectations for the big empty space behind the loosely themed Africa refreshment port? There are so many countries that belong in Epcot. I'm actually surprised that Dubai hasn't paid to have a presence. Yeah, so I don't think Japan, the country of Japan, owns the Japan space. No, I mean, there are obviously participants within that space in, in the retail environment and that sort of thing. Remember, when Epcot was built back in the day, it was the participants themselves that contributed money rather than the nation of Japan. Yeah, so Mitsukoshi sponsors yeah. the... Yeah, the there we go. On the other hand, that giant space behind the refreshment port, it's the Jay Leno Twinkie joke. It, you know, it's like, hey, pal, you should live so long. I would love to see that. But the other thing, frankly, uh, you know, folks coming to Walt Disney World have to realize is there's this place called Animal Kingdom. Yeah, that's the thing. It'd be difficult to do an Africa pavilion. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm certain it would be sub-Saharan Africa because they've already got Morocco for uh, for the northern part of Africa. There you go. It's tough to do that and not steal an idea from Animal Kingdom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's the tricky part there. All right, uh, after we talked about backstage tours, mm -hmm. longtime listener John Ladd wrote in with this. On a recent podcast, you briefly discussed the Backstage Magic Tour, mm -hmm. uh, which was a tour that I took in 1999, and it was fascinating. I made notes to myself that same evening mm -hmm. so I could remember the details later. Here they are. Mm -hmm. So uh, so John took the Backstage Magic Tour in 1999, so 24 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, started off at the American Adventure in Epcot. Mm -hmm. uh, his couple of notes there said that the, um, the set is on a set of wagons that moves under the audience, mm -hmm. forwards towards the stage. Also, there are cosmetologists that come in at 4 a.m. to do real hair wigs and makeup for the characters. Did not know that. Yep. I love that he grabbed these details. Also, the uh, Living Seas is a 5 million gallon tank. The water is filtered every two hours. The water's never been changed. And the windows that you look through are 6 to 8 inch plexiglass. All right. Over at Wonders of Life, I love this. Uh, you guys remember the old Body Wars attraction? Mm -hmm. Apparently, it went through three Imagineers until one of them could handle the nausea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and speaking of that, there's a camera that looks in on the audience during the ride for people who are about to get sick, and then it slows the ride down. <sighs> okay. Looking for that. Just, just yeah, Is somebody sitting in front of the camera with a color chart? Oop, yep, yep. That's the green. Okay. <laughs> Would you say that he is uh, he is more forest green? He's sort of minty <laughs> green right now. What's the shade? Okay. Yeah. Over at MGM Studios, John did the animation tour and mm -hmm. drew Goofy mm -hmm. and also painted a cell and then saw the, uh, the costumes, which mm -hmm. was super interesting. At uh, Magic Kingdom, they toured 20,000 leagues under the sea. Man, John got a great tour here. He did. He did. And the tour noted that Disney has two master ship builders on mm -hmm. staff. They have covered dry docks for ferries and other boats. Mm -hmm. They talked about the Christmas lights and the electrical water pageant and a bunch of costumes and how, to, uh, how heavy the, uh, the costumes are. The head on Beast for Beauty and the Beast is 35 pounds. Uh, they toured the laundry area, the tunnel area. Mm -hmm. John discovered that the Main Street cookie scent mm -hmm. that was in use back in 1999 was uh, done through a canister mounted on a wall that pumps the smell through Main Street. So these are the smellitizers, right? Mm. Also, John was able to see the new um, Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh ride that was being made, including the Honey Pot Cars. And then they, uh, they did um, a little bit of the dress code for men and women back in the day. So I remember the old dress code was 
no facial hair for men, hair off the collar and ears. Uh, and then for women, no hair in the face, eyeshadow has to be the same color as outfits. And then your earrings could not be larger than a quarter. And it sounds like a great tour, though. No, it it was. But it was top dollar during that time. I, again, yeah. I want to say it's, it was $199 a person. But but look at all, everything you got to do, everything you got to yeah. see. So Yeah, it sounds like an all-day tour. Yeah, fascinating. Thanks for sending that in, John, and uh, good notes. Yeah, thanks for the info. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim talks about all the times Disney's tried to turn robotic arms into rides at its theme parks. We'll be right back. Robotic arms in the parks, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, it's interesting you take that approach on that story because that one thing definitely went wrong for Disney. They, they moved a little too slow here. Mm. But when we're talking robotic arms, we have to basically acknowledge the company that came up with them, which is the Keller and Und Knapdich Osberg. Uh, by the way, if you take all of the first letters of that name, that's how you get KUKA, K-U-K-A. Ah, the KUKA arm people. Yeah, these are, the, um, these are the ones who, the KUKA arm is the ride vehicle assembly for... Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey over at Universal, right? It is. It is. Okay, but got it. also, uh, those of you who remember the Sum of All Thrills attraction uh, yes, that, that, that was yes, in Epcot, yes, yes. KUKA has actually been around since 1898, Len. In fact, this year is the company's 125th anniversary. Back then, they sold affordable lighting for houses and, and you know things like street lamps. And sure. uh, over time, the company, because of, again, working on street lamps, there was some welding involved. They then began to sell equipment for welding that then led to KUKA, creating items that could be used in assembly line work uh, for heavy assembly, like, you know, say the production of cars and buses. Oh, they built the tools that built the tools. There yeah, we yeah, go. Yeah, got it. Okay. okay. Since we're talking briefly about assembly lines, and, and again, it, it's kind of intriguing, you know, the, the idea of a robotic arm. Somebody made the jump to, hey, that could be a theme park ride. But this is actually how Walt used to work. I mean, Walt got the idea for the people mover and the omni mover system back in the, the late 50s, early 60s. I mean, Henry Ford II had reached out to Walt with the idea of, you know, Ford was looking to do uh, a pavilion for the 1964-1965 World's Fair. And so they were spitballing ideas at that point. And so Henry Ford II invites Walt out to sort of, well, come see our facility, come see our plants, and maybe an idea will jump out at you. And as Walt is touring the Ford's manufacturing plants, he watches, he's fascinated by when these giant cauldrons of molten steel are moved along the assembly line in such a way that none of the, the Ford employees are at risk. This is all done very safely. And it's just like, how is that done? And Walt eyeballs this heavy industrial system. And as soon as he gets to Burbank, he turns to John Henshin and is like, you're getting on a plane to Michigan. Take a look at that. <laughs> There's a ride system there. There's a ride system there. Yeah, yeah. Walt had learned the hard way that, especially when it came to ride vehicles, 
things that can move big, heavy things very quickly. I mean, that's what you want in your theme park. I mean, he yeah. was still smarting from what happened with the original version of Dumbo the Flying Elephant for Disneyland. The, the, the version that debuted in 55, those first elephants all by themselves weighed 700 pounds apiece. Oh, and you're going to put that on a big arm? Well, no, yeah, that's, that's exactly all. before you even load the guests into it. And and half, yeah. half of that was the weight of the motor in Dumbo's head that used to make the ears flap. But things that are used in heavy industry can lend themselves to theme park. So back to KUKA, early 1970s, they invent the Famulus, uh, which is a robotic arm with six axes, all driven by electronic motors. And it revolutionizes the auto industry. Now, finally, you can put robots on your assembly line that can do welding and that sort of thing, yeah. you know, fine detail work. And Kuga continues to explore the technology, refines these ideas. And finally, in 1985, we get a Z-shaped robotic arm, which the company very so humbly dubs the Kuga arm. It promises the user total flexibility thanks to its three translational movements. Uh, and by the way, translational motion is the, the motion in which all points of a moving body move uniformly in the same direction or line. Wow. And the, 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 this kook arm also had three rotational moments, which, uh, movements, which in, in this case, rotational movement basically means circular motion, a movement around an axis. Yeah, so we, we're familiar with like moving in the X, Y, and Z yep, yep. spaces, right? But imagine being able to spin on those axes that, as well. That, that, that's it. Amazing. So, uh, yeah. so again, Kukarm promises as a user six degrees of freedom, which is great for repetitive robotic work on an assembly line. But just like back in Walt's day, folks who worked in themed entertainment would periodically tour industrial plants where the cuckoo arms could be seen in action and think, man, if you place the seat on the end of that thing and then put a person in it, that would be one hell of a ride. You know, I, I get how that works for Kuka, mm -hmm. but if you're touring like... I don't know, NASA. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you know, we put a person on the end of that thing. <laughs> that would be one hell of a ride. Yeah, that's that's fake. But like, what about if you if you tour like the Swiffer factory? You're at the end. You know, if you put a seat on the end of that long stick, you stick it up in the ceiling. That could be a heck of a ride. Yeah. <laughs> All right. In the history of Imagineering, <laughs> there are always stories like this. Like, for example, the rolling rock effect in uh, the Indiana Jones Adventure Indiana Jones, at Disneyland. Yeah. Tony Baxter came up with the idea for that when he was in his car going through a car wash. You know that moment when you're in a car wash and your car is moving forward and suddenly the cage that contains those strips that slap at you suddenly moves and for a moment, you know, you're disoriented like, oh my God, I'm, I thought the car was moving forward. Now we're moving backwards. Tony saw that and realized that's how we pull off the rolling rock effect in the Indiana Jones adventure thing. It just, you have to have the right mindset yeah. to see. You have to be curious about how things work. Yeah. There we go. There we go. All right. So anyway, periodically theme park companies would go to KUKA and talk with them. And they're like, no, 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 these are, this is industrial KUKA. We use this for auto assembly. Go away. But it took two decades for KUKA to finally embrace this idea. You know, the idea of taking their heavy industrial robotic arms and, and turn them into a way to entertain people in a theme park setting. But by the early 2000s, they finally came around. So this is one we got in 2003, the Kuka Arm Robo Coaster. And it was mm. the world's first and only passenger carrying robot, which was determined to change the face of the amusement industry. But 
you have to walk before you can run. And so a Disney comes in, they see this thing in IAPA, and they're like, all right, we'll buy one. But they buy the arm, and where do they use it? They put it in Nemo in Friends for the anglerfish scene. In you know, which you 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 kind of get because that's the the anglerfish effect. But that's a very expensive way. It to is. Do it. it is done it with a fishing pole and some uh, some neon paint. They put it in the attraction. It's ridiculously reliable. It's very effective. And so Disney goes, hmm, okay. They don't like to use their own money. So they turned to Raytheon and they said, let's collaborate on something. So they, they designed, between the two of them, a new motion simulator attraction for Innoventions, which, as we talked about, top of the show, uh, the sum of all thrills. And yeah. it allowed the guests to design, well, what was it? It was a roller coaster. It could be a plane, a bobsled Bob run. run. Yeah, yeah. Using So you got to design the track. Uh, or the path that these things went on. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. I mean, for, for 2009 technology, yep. uh, it was really, really well done. You could customize a lot of effects of it. Yeah. And the ride experience was great. Remember when you took that backstage tour at Epcot in the early 80s? There was that Astuter computer show they had in the... Right, yeah. There was a there was a design your own... Was it a roller coaster ride? It was design your own... Yeah, the, the, yeah I, I know. I remember yeah, you yeah. describing that on, on a show. And what I find yeah. fascinating is, remember, or, you know, when Disney Quest first opened, you had your cyberspace mountain where, you know... Yep. I, and I want to say that's 98, 99. This is doing it on a, a much grander scale. And, and more to the point, uh, people standing in line could watch you experience the kook arm thing. And that was the, uh, that was one of the other cool parts about it. As you were walking through interventions, mm -hmm. you know, you go through a lot of displays or exhibits or basically like stand in this one area mm -hmm. until you go into this room where no one can see what you're doing. Yep. But the kook arm was right out there in public, you know, surrounded by clear glass for yeah. safety reasons. But yeah, you could see people being picked up and moved around by the arm and swung around and stuff. And you're like, I want to do that. There we go. Right. There we go. And and the plan was that Disney already had, thanks to Pixar's uh, 2004 release, The Incredibles, they had an IP where, you know, the whole notion of, well, The Incredibles have to train. So we'll let yeah. you go to the training facility uh, that the Parr family uses. And, and what was kind of interesting about this is you were supposed to battle an Omnidroid. And there was a version of this attraction for every member of the family. So if you wanted a, a gentle, fun experience, you literally took the Jack-Jack version. If, on the other hand, you really wanted a heavy-duty battle, you did the mm. Mr. Incredible version. And then I, I'm blanking the name of the young male child who was super, super fast. It, it, there was a fast version, literally. Uh, Dash? Dash, there we go. All right. Yeah. But here's the thing. Disney's developing that, but they haven't actually sat down with the, with the folks over at Kook Arm and said, hey, we're, we're thinking of doing this, and can we get a bunch of them set aside? And Meanwhile, over at Universal, they are developing Harry Potter Land. Duh. And they had an idea. This was called Project Strongarm, 
Those of you who are familiar with the second of the Harry Potter films, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, there's that moment where Ron and Harry miss the train to school. So they take the Weasley family car, which flies, and then fly to Hogwarts. And then they ended up tangling with the Whomping Willow, and the car then runs away and goes hides in the Forbidden Forest. And there was a lot of material there to work with. But ultimately because of loading issues i mean the the you know the issue of okay every time the the car came into the the station it would take so much time for people to climb out of the physical car and then reload what they opted to do instead was they came up with the flying bench idea that could literally be a continuous feed situation and and it really helped with the hourly capacity of the ride but they kept many of the same ride elements that had been developed for the Chamber of Secrets-inspired ride. Because the folks at Universal were going to buy so many KUKA arms, they got KUKA to agree to, we have an exclusive use on this technology in a theme park setting for 10 years, and they effectively blocked Disney from getting into, from developing a ride based on oh, the, this. the exclusives, yeah. So... And Kuka is the, the is the big name in robotics. Oh no no no! Absolutely, absolutely. But that attraction, uh, which was Harry Potter and and the Forbidden Journey, opened with the rest of the the very first Wizarding World in in June of 2010, and they never looked back. And now there are what? There's a Forbidden Journey at Tokyo Disney. Oh, to me, oh, excuse me, Universal. Japan in Osaka. Uh, likewise, mm-hmm. there's one at Universal Studios Hollywood. So certain executives at Disney are kicking themselves for not moving faster on the Incredibles attraction. And the uh, the exclusive mm-hmm. part of the contract has expired, right? They have, but from Disney's side of the fence, it's sort of like the situation between the amazing adventures of Spider-Man ride at Islands of Adventure versus Web Slingers. It, you know, it's the whole notion of we don't want to be seen as duplicating Oh, you right, know, we, yeah. we want something different. I was once lucky enough to get an after-hours tour at Universal. And at one point, they took us backstage where they were running the Forbidden Journey ride empty. And you got to see the Kuka Arms in action in their raw form. And Len, it was terrifying. <laughs> Does it look, look look like something about a Willy Wonka gone bad? Oh, oh, oh you know, no, 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 no. Better go Willy Wonka. This is James Cameron's t- Terminator movies. To see these things, how powerful they were, and how they're whipping the chairs around, and all I can think of is if these things ever get out of this building, they'll kill us all. <laughs> Make sure that they're fastened, they're uh, fastened down tight. Just don't leave the elephant doors open to let these things wander free in the park. That they will kill us all. It's amazing because it, it looks like such a great potential ride. Yeah. But then you dig into it and it's like, you know, you can see where the problem areas mm-hmm. might be. Yeah. I mean, capacity would be one. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But. Yeah. yeah. But still, it's a it's a really cool idea. It is. I hope, uh, I hope we see prototypes soon for it. Mm-hmm. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Gmail Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows, Nipple for Heard, on iTunes. You can find more of Jim at jimhellmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. He'll be playing lead guitar on She's a Runner with In the Dark, a tribute to Billy Squire at the 16th annual Wing and Rock Fest on Saturday, March 25th, 2023 at Etwa River Park 
That's exit 19B just off I-575 in beautiful Canton, Georgia. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.